These events are true, but told as I remember them. And just a heads up, I talk about mental illness and suicide in this piece, so please take care of yourselves appropriately. Bluebird of Happiness by Barbara Garrick. I'm a kid, and I'm obsessed with flying. I have these wild, vivid dreams of flying in the sky, whizzing up and down all over the place. I also have dreams of flying through water super fast, and I can breathe. <laughs> so cool, <laughs> right? I'm six, and I wake up in the morning, and I run upstairs to my big brother's room, and he puts his feet in my belly and his hands on my shoulders, and he straightens out his legs as I stretch out my arms, and I fly for like 30 seconds. We call these flying angels, and I make them do it every morning, and I love it. I'm eight, and I can hear my father telling me how planes fly. We're at the airport watching jets take off. My dad says, planes need opposing force under their wings, a headwind coming at them in order to be airborne, in order to have liftoff. I'm 13, and I make these long cardboard wings, and I tape them onto my arms, and I leap off our second-story garage roof and try to fly. But it doesn't work. <laughs> no headwind. I'm 15, and I'm not eating, and it's like I'm flying around the city, and I do a lot of mushrooms, and I'm flying around the world, but I'm lying on my living room couch. Weird, huh? I'm 16, and I'm a dancer, and I can do a really good grand jeté, which means I run, jump, split my legs in the air, and I'm suspended for a moment, and it's powerful, fantastic. I'm 18, and I'm an actor now and I experience what it's like to soar through a scene where I don't know where I'm going and I don't know what's going to happen next, just the vast open space before me, the theater, the audience, kind of like this. I'm 26, and I'm flying, reeling, as I open the door to my dressing room on the opening night of my first Broadway show, Eastern Standard, and the floor is covered in flowers, bouquets upon bouquets of flowers. I'm 29. It's New York City, April 11th, 1991, 6.30 p.m., and cold as hell. I'm twirling around on Releve doing this little ballet dance, naked. And I feel the exact stillness of the moment I decide it's my turn to die. But... I won't really die. I will pass through the window frame, and on the other side, I'll be reborn as a bird. But not just any bird, a bird who is God's right-hand man. I see the open window, and I run full speed ahead. My boyfriend, who is sleeping on the couch, his eyes snap open, and he lunges for my body, hurling out the six-story window. He grabs me by my ankles, and with superhuman strength, he drags me back, scraping my hairy shins against my cactus plants. He tries to hold me down, but I run to the bedroom. I see the half-open window, and I slam my body into the glass, clawing at it to get out. He pulls me to the ground and holds his body over mine like a net, and he's crying, saying, I know you're in there, Barbara, I know you're in there somewhere. 
and somehow he manages to call 911 and the place is crawling with EMT and police swarming the apartment. The sound of walkie-talkies everywhere. I'm wrapped in a long purple coat and one of the younger policemen asks me what happened and I just open my robe and expose myself to him and he simply says, Please, miss, close your coat. They put me in a straitjacket and strap me to a gurney and take me to Beth Israel Hospital on New York's Lower East Side. I'm put into solitary confinement for the next 24 hours where I pace, mutter, and do yoga against the walls of my cell. My big brother comes to sign me in, but I refuse to see him. I won't talk to anybody. I'm spending the next 11 weeks on this psych ward, twittering away like a bird. Nobody can bring me back. My friends and family come out of the woodwork, Molly and Lydia, those who were not scared away, and I begin the slow crawl back to what was my life, my career, my voice. It did seem dismal, but like a phoenix rising out of the ashes, I then got the part that would be a game changer. It's now July of 1991, New York City. I'm still 29 years old, and I've just been released from those 11 weeks on the psych ward at Beth Israel Hospital. The doctors don't know what's happening to me. They say I could have schizoaffective disorder or borderline personality disorder or both or maybe neither. All I know is I am so doped up on so many antipsychotics that I shake uncontrollably, my hands and legs in constant motion, yet my arms are stiff like boards at my side and do not sway when I walk. My face has a blank affect, my eyes hardly ever blinking, staring straight ahead like a deer in the headlights, flattened, slammed. I didn't see this one coming. I've gained 40 pounds, also due to the side effects of the medications, and I feel like a big, swollen bug. My emotions are on mute. It's like there's all this cotton batten in my head, and it keeps me in slow motion, two steps behind everybody else. I'm frozen, and I literally can't cry tears. The only emotion I feel is a weird, jittery rage, and I yell at my poor therapist, Helen, in session after session. When the fuck is this gonna be over? When will I be my old self again? Tell me. Until one day, the other therapist sharing the office space complains about my outbursts, and I am told to keep it quiet. So, I try to hide in sleep all day. Every moment I get, I run to my futon in my bedroom and I crawl under the covers and in my darkness I try to forget, to have five minutes of blackout bliss, to escape from my mother who has come from Toronto to be with me and my boyfriend who saved my life and who's now living with me, their encouragement, their health. They just don't understand that sickness engulfs me like exhaust fumes, and I often think of death. I go on my first audition a few weeks out of the hospital for a play off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater, and I shake so badly that the casting director calls my agent and asks if I have multiple sclerosis. 
My agent explains it away as she had a bad day and tells me maybe I should take a long break from auditioning. Not easy to hear when prior to getting sick I'd been on a roll doing two films and a play back-to-back with the late great Mike Nichols. But then there is Jane, a close friend of my boyfriend who's visited me almost every day in the hospital. She's watered my plants, kept me from withering with her buoyant spirit, helped me pay my bills by literally writing out the checks, I sign them, She puts them in the envelope, licks the stamp, and sends them off in the mail. Jane is about 25 years old and a newly minted social worker just moved here from Chicago. She suggests I volunteer at a summer camp she will be working at too. It's for kids who are at risk of being taken from their homes due to substance abuse in one or both of their parents. Jane will be working with the parents, and I will be volunteering with the kids in the summer camp. I gratefully accept and start the journey of getting up at 5 a.m. Monday to Friday to travel up to the Grand Concourse in the South Bronx. I help with the lunches, going to the park, the pool, and the final talent show. There's one boy, Tay. He's about six years old and holds my hand tightly all day. He won't let go. The last day of camp, I hear Tay has thrown himself from a moving car. And although he survives and seems to be physically all right, he's put on the psych ward at just six years of age. We can have no more contact with each other and I never see or hear from Tay again. But I feel it. That darkness. That fucking darkness is everywhere. Then, I take up volunteering in the fall with a new organization called New York Cares a couple of times a week. This time, volunteering with a shelter in Harlem with kids who have been burned out of their homes by fire. I'm meeting with the kids on the first day of volunteering, and I see a young boy about nine years old. He's standing, leaning against a lamppost, and I say, Hi, my name's Barbara. Do you want to be my buddy today? (laughs) And he just looks at me and says nothing. His friends say, Hey, man, why didn't you talk to her? The lady asked you a question. And I say, Leave him alone. He's just angry. And I can see a flicker of light in the darkness of those eyes, some recognition. And he says quietly, yeah, I'll be your buddy. I find out his name is Darnell. And over our time together, we become inseparable. We go on outings as a group every weekend to baseball games, the science center, the movies. We do arts and crafts. And we go to the library religiously once a week. And it quickly becomes clear Darnell can't read at his grade level, and now I am the one who is getting even more angry. So I send him pop-up books and picture books to keep him interested, and as time goes by, he is doing fantastic. When we're riding the subway to these outings, the kids are the first to give whatever change they have in their pockets when someone comes asking for money on the train. And we literally have to stop them from giving away their lunches we have made for them. They are uniting our city for me, north to south and east to west. One day in the schoolyard, I asked Darnell what he wants to be when he grows up, and he says, I want a job in a big, 
tall office building behind a big, tall desk so I don't get shot. My illness is thawing with the heat of my rage. The last day of our time together, we take a cheese bus, as the kids call the school buses, to an apple orchard. And on the way home, Darnell falls asleep with his head in my lap. And I stay like that, not moving an inch for half an hour after we arrive back at the shelter. It's so peaceful, and I just want him to sleep. Next, during the week, I take up volunteering with a resident at the Associated Blind on West 23rd Street, and I read him the daily newspaper, textbooks for his school courses, and eventually novels. And I pretend I've been hired to read an audiobook, and I dream of acting again. One day, Jane calls me on the phone and says, Hey, my boyfriend Jim is coming to see me from L.A. and he's preparing to do a new August Wilson play at the Kennedy Center called Two Trains Running. Would you be interested in running lines with him? I eagerly say, sure. But when I meet Jim, a tall, burly actor with a booming voice, we do not hit it off. He is skeptical that I am up for the job. But when we start reading lines together, something wonderful happens. My voice is full and quick, keeping pace with his. My legs and hands have stopped shaking, and I can feel emotions like mercury flickering under the surface. And by the end of our first session, Jim says to me, I didn't think you were an actor when I met you, but now I know you are definitely an actor. I am certainly no longer a cave person frozen for centuries in deep freeze. So I tell my agent I'm ready to try auditioning again. And my first audition back is for Manhattan Theatre Club's production of a small family business to be done on Broadway at the Music Box Theatre. And I book it. We open April 27th of 1992, 14 days after two trains running opens on Broadway at the Walter Kerr. Before our show closes, I ask the producers of a small family business to give Darnell and the other kids and volunteers and my friend from Associated Blind tickets to a matinee performance of our show. And the kids love it. They hoot and holler. But the biggest surprise is how much they love the plastic prop turkey from the Thanksgiving dinner scene when I show them it's fake at the talkback after the show. I volunteer intermittently during the next few months with all of them again, but something has cracked open in me and suddenly I am working more than I ever have. I do three movies, Sleepless in Seattle, The Firm, Miami Rhapsody with Sarah Jessica Parker, and a film for PBS with Todd Haynes called Dottie Gets Spanked. And I play the game changer, Didi Halcyon Day in the glorious Tales of the City, also on PBS. And I know those kids, Tay and Darnell, my friend at Associated Blind, have brought me back to the surface, put the flicker in my eyes, the force in my voice from laughing with them, reading with them and calling their names across a schoolyard. Little did I know, I'd soon be talking with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself.
It's now March of 1995, three years later, and I'm 33 years old. I'm working with a hot new agency, and I have an amazing new agent named Marty. And I'm kind of on top of the heap again. I get cast in the world premiere of a Beth Henley play called Signature at the Charlotte Repertory Theater in Charlotte, North Carolina. But things are brewing on the horizon. I've quit a play with the new group where I was replacing Tatum O'Neill because I panicked that I wouldn't be able to learn the part in just two weeks. And I've been fired from a one-act with James Earl Jones that was being filmed for PBS because on the first day of rehearsal, I tell the director I see my character as a drowned gerbil. Artistic differences, I guess. (laughs) My symptoms were raging. I'm still misdiagnosed and mismedicated. I'm quite simply a ticking time bomb. So... I head down to Charlotte, North Carolina and set up camp in the Doubletree Inn where the theater is putting me up. I'm making it to rehearsals, but I can't retain my lines or blocking, and I've been found more than once taking a nap on the front lawn of the Doubletree Inn by the concierge. The night before our first tech rehearsal, I'm in my room at the hotel and my body is on fire. I'm sweating profusely and I have a dire sense of urgency as I believe I alone must save the civil rights movement, and I'm having an in-depth and intense conversation with a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I look around the room, which is in a shambles, and I realize that something is not right. So I get myself in a taxi, and I go to the local emergency room. I must have told them I was working at the Charlotte Rep because the hospital calls someone from the board of directors of the theater to come and assess the situation. Her name is Jodi, and she stays with me most of the night listening to me babble on about orgasms and the urgency of the civil rights movement. She tells me to try and sleep, but I have intense insomnia and cannot sleep on the cold metal slab of an examining table they have left me on. Come the morning, Jody is gone, and the doctor tells me he does not believe I am a danger to myself, so he sends me back to the Doubletree Inn. An hour later, I'm in the bathroom of the hotel, where the cleaning person comes in and finds me on the cold bathroom floor, curled up in the fetal position, squawking like a bird, and convulsing in the midst of my second full-blown psychotic break. I'm rushed by ambulance to a second hospital of sorts. It's called Charter Pines Behavioral Health, which is really a Christian rehab slash psychiatric facility and is full of young people who mainly have drug or alcohol abuse issues and some kind of psychiatric condition as well. I am not only not addicted to drugs or alcohol, but I am the sickest person psychiatrically, by far, in this facility. Jody comes to visit me the first day there and tells me I'm being let go from the play and they've already replaced me. As we all know, the show must go on. For some reason, maybe because Jody is a devout Christian, I don't know, but she befriends me and comes to visit me almost every day in the two weeks I am at Charter Pines. It's a bizarre facility. They're very fond of saying, never withhold a compliment, and always remember to say thank you. 
and they do a lot of therapeutic gardening and very unconventional group therapy sort of thing where facilitators, I don't even think they're therapists, encourage you to stand up and say whatever's on your mind, which is not a good idea in my current state, but I do it anyway. One day, I stand up and I start yelling at my mother, my mother who has flown down from Toronto to be with me to clean up my mess again. I scream at her, I hate you! You're a bitch! And I run out of the therapy room to the payphones across the hallway, and I call my father, and I scream at the top of my lungs, You sexually abused me as a child! Which my father flat out denies and threatens to sue my therapist Helen for planting false memories in my head. Then I get on the phone again, and I call my oldest brother, and I scream at the top of my lungs, You sexually abused me as a child! And I think he hangs up out of sheer shock. I, I, I can't remember. But I am here today to say neither of them ever sexually abused me as a child. Total psychotic fabrication. The next night, I'm up overwatering the plants in the day room. And I see Tom Hanks on the TV. And he's giving his acceptance speech at the Oscars for Forrest Gump. And I have a rare moment of reflection as I hearken back three short years to when I was doing Sleepless in Seattle opposite Mr. Hanks, and I determine I will be on top of the heap again. And since I've been cast in a film to shoot in Berlin prior to coming down to Charlotte, and my new agent, Marty, wisely has not told the film about my hospitalization yet, I make a deal with the psychiatrist at Charter Pines. He says I can go and shoot the movie on two conditions. One, I have to learn my lines before I go. And two, someone has to chaperone me. My mother is totally burnt out, as you can imagine, and has to get back to her job in Toronto. So Jody amazingly volunteers to be my chaperone and go with me to Berlin. The film is on. The movie is called A Couch in New York, and it stars the late, great William Hurt and the radiant Juliette Binoche. And I am playing Lizbeth Honeywell, Mr. Hurt's fiance, who he throws over for, yes, Juliet. It is being written and directed by the late, great Chantel Ackerman. I try and learn my lines, but I can't. But the psychiatrist lets me go anyway. He has misdiagnosed and mismedicated me yet again. And when Jody and I get on the set in Berlin, we find out Juliette Binoche doesn't learn her lines either, as is her style on this film, in close-ups anyway. She has her acting coach feed her a line. Juliette delivers it. Then she's fed the next line. Juliette delivers it. And so on and so on. So cool, right? There's a wonderful family feeling on set. I remember stopping filming and sitting down to a four-course meal together, complete with red and white wine. And one day, I'm in the makeup room, getting ready for camera. Juliet is bathing her young son, Raphael, in the makeup sink, and he's giggling and splashing water everywhere. And I look through the door to the dining room, and I see Jody and William Hurt sharing a joint. And I think, yes. Life is good again, on top of the heap. 
Then there were more plays and even more tales of the city. How long could this last? I could never be sure until I fell flat on Broadway. It's a Saturday in April, New York City, 1997, two years after the film in Berlin. I've been cast in my third Broadway show, a play called Stanley at the Circle in the Square Theater that's being directed by John Caird and stars the late great Sir Anthony Scher. I am playing the role of the painter, Gwen Raverat. This particular Sunday, my father is in town from Toronto to see me in this evening's performance, and I am to meet him in Central Park. I find him sitting in the park, checking his watch, a little angry, a little concerned, as I'm almost an hour late and totally unfazed. I laugh it off, and we start to walk through the park, and I'm gushing about spring in New York City, and I fly up like a helium balloon at the sight of this field of daffodils in the spring light, and I start to have a hallucination of the colors being electric and so vibrant that they're alive, dancing, pulsing like disco lights before my eyes, and I am filled with an overwhelming feeling of love for all humankind, and my father suspects nothing. We continue to walk through the park, I sing, I dance, I tell him I have to go to my show, and we arranged to meet up between the matinee and evening performance to have something to eat. So I hug my dad, I kiss him, I tell him I love him like a boundaryless baby, and I start to stroll down to the theater. Now, at Circle in the Square, you have to walk through the theater, past the seats to get backstage. And I notice the audience is quite full and babbling away, but it sounds, you know, like, like, Teenage girls gossiping in a slightly disturbing way about you. And I look at my watch and I realize it's 2 o'clock and I have a 2 o'clock matinee. So I go backstage quickly. My understudy is dressed in her costume. The show is supposed to be beginning right now. But for some reason, the stage manager holds the curtain and allows me to get dressed in my costume and go on. So I go on for the first scene, which for my character is a lot of swirling movement, hushed laughter, and moving of furniture. And it all goes well, without a glitch. Then I go on for my second scene, and it's just me and Sir Anthony on stage. So Sir Anthony starts speaking his lines, and he gives me my cue, and I don't say anything. I'm just staring, fascinated by the paint on my hands, which is part of my costume, and I start bending over like an old lady because I can feel the weight of the audience pounding down on my back like a thousand tons of gravel pouring over my spine. And Sir Anthony is silent. Then he starts anxiously improvising my lines into his speech, and I just walk off the stage before the scene is ended. I've just had my third full-blown psychotic break in front of 800 people. What happened next, I don't really remember. They must have stopped the show and my understudy carried on. I vaguely remember Sir Anthony coming off stage and having a screaming fit with the stage manager. They must have called my boyfriend, who must have called my psychiatrist, who must have said I needed a week or two off from the show to readjust my meds. 
I'm hospitalized at Gracie Square Hospital for two weeks where they put me on two new horrible drugs. I returned to the show two weeks later. John cared the director welcomed me back without a word of condemnation, and he did not fire me. Two weeks later, the show closes and I'm on my way to Montreal to shoot more Tales of the City. Now, for those of you who are confused, there are Tales of the City, 1993 PBS, more Tales of the City, 1997 Showtime, further Tales of the City, 2001 Showtime, and Tales of the City, 2019 Netflix. So this is more Tales of the City, 1997. The medications I've been put on in Gracie Square Hospital are causing my face to erupt in huge welts of cystic acne and are causing intense weight gain and increased appetite. I've gone from weighing 100 pounds in Berlin to weighing 135 pounds in Montreal. I remember one particular day on set where the three producers of More Tales are sitting across from me dumbfounded as I inhale a family-sized platter of fried tempura. They then get together and have a little talk with me about not gaining any more weight. I am miserable because I can't seem to stop eating and I can't live and work with these side effects of the new drugs. Besides, they're not even working. But ahead, I caught another break in the answer to my search. So when I get back to New York from Montreal and shooting more Tales of the City, a near disaster, I seek out a new psychiatrist. We'll call him Dr. W. So I go to Dr. W's office for the first time. It's on Fifth Avenue in the East 60s, and I enter his posh, silent office, and it's bright and sunny, and he's got all his own artwork on the walls and all these odd things like baseballs and arrowheads and bowls of wooden eggs, which I later learn are gifts from grateful patients. I also learned Dr. W is the foremost specialist on bipolar disorder in young people in New York City, and he correctly diagnoses me as having bipolar disorder type 1 with a side of schizoaffective disorder. And finally, finally, I get on the right meds. And of course... I think Dr. W is just amazing. So we start working together. I learn he loves anything from the Civil War. His favorite playwright is Arthur Miller and his favorite book, Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's fond of saying, a journey of a thousand miles begins with just one step, Miss Garrick. He teaches me about the importance of prioritizing my sleep Lack of sleep is the number one cause of a manic episode, he tells me. He also teaches me which one of my meds does what, how to name and describe my symptoms, how to pace myself and strategize my activities for the week, basically everything I need to know to stay well. And I start working successfully, and I do stay well. Until. Fast forward to 2004, seven years later, and I've hit a clinical depression. Dr. W is, as I've said, a Fifth Avenue top-of-the-line psychiatrist, and he is expensive, and I can't keep up with his fees anymore. Dr. W graciously says, 
why don't I charge you $35 for a 45-minute session once a month and I will be your doctor until the day I die? Yes. And I don't make a single decision in the 20 years we worked together without first checking with Dr. W. I successfully complete 12 TV projects, 11 feature films, four plays off-Broadway, five regional productions, and my fourth Broadway show, A Thousand Clowns with Tom Selleck. Now, this means I have worked with Tom Selleck, Tom Hulse, Tom Gibson, Tom Cruise, and Tom Hanks. That's a lot of Toms. Then three years later in 2007, I have the great good fortune to encounter Nichiren Buddhism. It revolutionizes my life and especially my view of my health. I chant Namyoho Renge Kyo with an organization called the SGI. Yes, just like the late great Tina Turner. When I'm literally chanting, I can put a pause on and I can get distance between me and my symptoms and I can see and identify them, like, oh, there's the paranoia. Okay, here comes the boundarylessness. Oh dear, I'm hovering on the edge. Be careful, you're off-center. Oops, there goes the tremor in my right hand again. Okay, I'm revving up. Oh no, I'm dipping down. And through this process of tapping into my inner wisdom, or Buddha nature as we call it, which we all equally possess, I can tell my treatment team what's going on before I hit a crisis. And my mind feels reinforced and I feel a limitless strength and courage and compassion to take on this insidious, sneaky, mean, and often confusing bipolar disorder and the stigma that goes with it. I feel like I raise my life force by chanting and I'm able to beat the hardest part of any illness which is the part that drags you down, saps your strength, and beats you up just for being ill. Four years later, in 2011, my mom dies. Her mind blasted by dementia, and one day her heart simply stopped. Three years earlier, just as the dementia was taking over, I gave her a color illustration of a bright blue bird in two poses, full flight and standing alert and ready. And I wrote this, Dear Mum, may this blue bird of happiness alight on your shoulder and sing sweetly in your ear all the days of your life, knocking out that nasty crow who sits on your shoulder, pecking at your neck and head. Fly, sweet bird, to be with my dear Mum and save her from the bird of prey. I adore you always. Love, Barbara. Three years after my mom's death in 2014, my father, a renowned transplant surgeon, has a massive heart attack and dies instantly on his way to a chemo treatment. Two years later, in 2016, I go to Dr. W's office for my regular session. He's sitting there, as usual, in his full suit and tie. He straightens his pant legs, leans forward to speak. Instead, I say, so... What's wrong? What's the matter? He says, why do you think something's the matter? I say, you look different. You just look different. You look sad, and I don't know. You look different. What is it? And he pauses for a long moment, and he says, I'm sick. And I say, oh, Dr. W., I'm so sorry. He says, yeah, I have cancer. I have cancer of the bone. I'm very, very sick. How did you know? 
And I say, I don't know, your face looks different. It's swollen and you look kind of green. He says, oh, that's because I just came from chemo. You've never seen me after I've had a treatment. This was unusual that I was having it on a Monday. You're the first person I've told outside my family. Well, you guessed, really. And I'm not telling any of my other patients just yet. Some of them just wouldn't get it. I start to cry a bit, and I say, Oh, Dr. W., how long have you known? He says, Since December. Yeah, I've been going to chemo twice a week for the past three months. They found out about it when I had a blood test. He came back that I had anemia. They'd given me six to eight months to live. And I am reeling. I do everything Dr. W. tells me. I get a great new psychiatrist. We'll call her Dr. B. She's in her 40s. Young, Dr. W. says, so she can be your doctor for the rest of your life. I come back for our final session. Dr. W. is showing me all the things in his office. He's taking out his collection, his beloved collection of arrowheads, and he's putting them in the palm of my hand and telling me where they were found and where they are going. Some of them are going to the Smithsonian. We are saying goodbye. Then I ask him if I can hug him, and he stands up out of his chair and he puts his arms out like a scarecrow, and I put my arms around him gently, and I am amazed, as this is the first time I've ever touched him, and his limbs just feel so hollow, so light, and I hug him, and I sob, I love you, Dr. W., and I turn and dash out of his office, never to see or hear from him again. Then came a sudden death. Almost exactly to the day I say goodbye to Dr. W., one year later on September 6, 2017, is a cold, rainy day in New York City. I board a bus at Port Authority going to Emerson, New Jersey to attend my agent, Marty's memorial visitation. I arrive about an hour before the one o'clock service and the funeral home is empty. So I cross the street and have some greasy Chinese food in this roadside dive. After eating, I go back to the funeral home and this time it's packed with Marty's wealthy neighbors, the women wearing perfect Ferragamo shoes, dagger-like red nails, and highly coiffed hair. There's not a single actor or person from the industry in sight. I later learned they all attended the 5 p.m. service. I missed the memo. I'm not on social media. So I certainly wondered, maybe I shouldn't be here. They have TV sets everywhere playing a loop of Marty's home movies. He's laughing with his curly, curly hair, clowning around, happier than I've ever seen him. I watch as he puts a crown on his little girl's head and she spins around in her tutu, laughing. I think, I look like a voyeur. But I get on the long receding line anyway. I see Marty's wife, Kathy, at the end, wearing ruby red slippers like Dorothy. There's no place like home, right? No place like home. She's flanked by their two children dressed so elegantly in simple black. I stand out like a sore thumb in my secondhand clothes and sandals. But I go on. When I see Kathy, I start to reintroduce myself, but she says, 
Oh, I recognized you the moment you walked in. Marty loved you so much. Every time Sleepless in Seattle came on the TV, he would get so excited and yell, There's Barbara! Look! There's Barbara! I clumsily say, he, he loved you too. And she says, Oh, I know. And she looks straight at me and says, He always spent so much time taking care of his clients. He never forgot anyone's birthday or their kids' birthdays. Maybe if he'd spent a little more time taking care of himself, he wouldn't have... And I, I quickly interrupt her and say, I'm sorry, so sorry for your loss. And then she continues. It was his depression. He was working on himself. He was doing yoga. And she trails off. And time stops as I realize she was telling me that Marty killed himself. And I blurt out loudly, he was a great man. This causes her to awkwardly move to the next person and their son to perk up and wonder what I just said to his mother. So I step forward towards their two children and offer them a framed photo I've brought of Marty with his curly, curly hair, smiling eyes, pretending to talk to a client on the phone. I want to disappear. I make for the exit. The crowd of wealthy neighbors now seem vicious to me. I can hear Kathy calling after me. We'll see you at the Gershwin on September 23rd for the memorial. But it's like I'm underwater. I throw a yes over my shoulder, but I don't make it to the exit. My legs give way and I swirl into the first seat available. And when I finally look up, I see I've landed smack dab in a nest of Marty's out-of-town relatives who look glum and angry. I start up a flimsy conversation with this cousin. I think she's from Indianapolis. She wants to know, why am I here? I want to scream at her. Don't blame him. He was a great man. But instead, I carefully tell her, Marty was my agent and friend for 26 years, and I loved him dearly. Then I flee the funeral home. When I get outside, it's colder and raining even harder. I ask directions to the bus stop going back to New York City and try to cross the street. But the lights are so confusing to me. Somebody from the funeral home, I think, escorts me to the bus stop and leaves me there. But not before I see a black and white missing persons poster stapled to the lamppost with Marty's face smiling back at me. It says, Missing, Marty Talbot, last seen, Emerson, New Jersey, August 13th, 2017, and gives a number to call. They did find him on August 24th, 11 days later, about half a mile from his home, a little ways in from the road into the woods decomposing. It was all over the news. I, I later learned from Scott, his business partner, that Marty had been on medication for depression for a year, and he stopped taking it on his family vacation to Scotland. That damn fucking darkness is everywhere. After Marty died, I struggled to work for about a year. Then I do the lead in a gurney play off-Broadway, reprise my role as Dee Dee in Tales of the City 2019 Netflix and star opposite Brian Cox in my fifth Broadway show, The Great Society. Then COVID hits, and it brings with it, for me and many, many others, an acute sense of loneliness and isolation. I personally become even more distanced from my two older brothers 
They have little to no interest in being in contact with me. They are retreating into their own camps. Then a family crisis hit hard. It would have been hell, but I had my little brother, my shadow, Dave. It's now January 13th of 2022, and COVID is still raging. It's also the eighth anniversary of our father's death. I email my little brother Dave, my shadow, a picture of our father, and say, thinking of you and dad today, missing him, loving you, big hug, Barbara. And I get a brief but desperate email back. Quick hi from the emergency room. Been here seven hours. I've got pancreatitis. Very painful. I immediately email him back. Call me no matter the hour when you know more. Leaving my phone on all night. Hang in there, sweetie. Love you so dearly. Big hug, Barbara. The next morning, I haven't heard anything, so I call him, and I hear chaos on the other end of the line. He's been admitted to Victoria General Hospital in British Columbia on the west coast of Canada where he lives. I can hear the nurses talking loudly and quickly, and I ask to speak to one of them, and he says, Oh, Barbara, they're way too busy to talk. Please, don't worry. And he promptly starts throwing up, drops the phone, and we are disconnected. I get on a Zoom call with my two best girlfriends for the past 30-plus years, Molly and Lydia, and I basically tell them, I have to go out there. He can't be alone. He sounded so scared. Then the nurse calls from the ICU. Dave is in distress, and they are running more tests. I talk to his doctor, who says, he has a 50-50 chance of making a full recovery, and we are doing everything we can. I call my psychiatrist, Dr. B, and Zoom with my therapist, Helen, trying to make sure I'm really stable enough to go out there, and we discuss the potential obstacles that could arise. They both say, is there someone you could ask to go with you? I say no, but I reluctantly promise I will ask. So I text Molly and Lydia and ask if one of them could go with me, and to my shock and joy, Molly says she will. We're on. I arrange for two of Dave's closest friends, Grant and his wife Sherry, to get down to the hospital. They live in nearby Whistler to be with Dave until we can get there. But there is a tsunami going on on the west coast of Canada. And by the time they get to the hospital, Dave is in a coma, on dialysis, and a ventilator. It's Sunday, January 16th, 60 hours since the email. Molly and I are on the second leg of our trip, waiting in the Toronto airport. I get a text from Grant, Dave's friend, call the hospital. I talk to Dave's doctor, who says, He's taken a turn for the worse, and you should prepare yourself for the fact that he might not be alive when you get here. This news hits me hard. My limbs go limp and heavy, and my breathing slows to a crawl. There is a ringing in my ears, and I hear Molly saying in a muffled voice, our plane is boarding for Victoria. The next five hours and 11 minutes of the flight out west are like being suspended underwater waiting to come up for air. My mind is racing and stopping all at the same time. We arrive 9 p.m. Pacific time, get to the ICU. Sherry, Grant's wife, has been sitting with Dave for the past five hours, talking to him, telling him, hold on, 
Hold on, your sister is coming. And he has. Then Molly and I are alone with Dave, and I have no idea what is happening. And I turn to Molly and I say in a voice of wonder, There's so much love in the room, Molly. I'm so high. And it's true. It's like laughing gas or purple love smoke you can put your hand through. Molly says, talk to him. So I try and think of all the things I've ever wanted to say to this sweet man who's tagged along behind me most of my life, and I realize I've already said it all. His nurse, who is young and amazing, comes in and says, Dave's doctor would like to speak to us. So I quickly and quietly chant, Nam yo in Dave's ear and whispered, Don't be afraid, Dave. Don't be scared, sweetie. Dave's doctor is kind but blunt. He says Dave's pancreatitis is due to alcoholism. And although he is on a lot of morphine and in no pain, his body is literally eating itself alive. He's being very taxed on the machines, and they'd like my permission to take him off life support. I flash on a story Dave told me not long ago on Zoom of a wolf who gets caught in a trap and in his misery gnaws off his own leg in order to be free. I say, yes, of course, Dave would want to come off the machines. The doctor nods, and we are done. We're all in Dave's room now, laughing and smiling about his frequent trips to Cuba, how he loved that country, the music, the art, and of course his two girlfriends. His nurses joke how Dave said he was just too good-looking to die, so no one should worry, and how he was always apologizing for vomiting all over them. His head nurse asks me, Would you like to see Dave's face without the ventilator? And I say, Oh, yes. And again, without being aware of what is really happening, I lay my hand on his forehead. Molly rises and lays her hand on his heart. Sherry places her hands firmly and gently on Dave's shoulder as Grant talks to him quietly. And as I stroke his third eye, I feel a flicker, a light, a quickening, and then up, up, up like a bird, straight up past the fluorescent lights he flies, trailing his ventilator tubes like ribbons, flying so high, so free. He seems to be breathing still, but the nurse comes back in and says he's passed. We take our hands off him, stroke his hair, kiss his face and hands, and say our goodbyes. But he is stone cold now and not moving, his skin almost purple like the love smoke. And Molly says, he's just a body now. Dave is gone. We wash our hands and watch them close the drapes around his body. We walk arm in arm, two by two, down the hospital corridor. It's just past midnight. And I turn to my comrades and I say, It's so funny, but it's like there's all this air around me, like sky. And my shadow, my shadow is gone. Then I fall deeper than I ever thought possible, but something saves me.
With Dave gone, the next six months feel like the earth is moving beneath my feet and I can't quite figure out where I fit into the world anymore. Although I am very grateful, I'm getting a lot of auditions from my American and Canadian agents combined. I'm still going on three years, not getting any jobs. The tremor in my right hand is making a comeback in a lot of my self-taped auditions. So, me and my treatment team decide to go down and off two meds to try and get rid of my tremor. But on August 8th of 2022, on what would have been Dave's 59th birthday, I am falling fast and hard into a deep and dangerous depression. It's a combination of grief, a chemical imbalance from going off the meds, and a deep, lacerating sadness that knows no bounds. This leaves me crying for days at a time, feeling hopeless about my future, feeling alone, and having very harsh negative thoughts about myself. And the worst of it, the worst of it, is that suicide now seems like an inevitable conclusion for me. I'm baffled. How can I be here again? We're doing everything by the book. Why am I planning my own death? I don't even believe in suicide. Fortunately for me, within 24 hours of realizing this is a time of crisis, my psychiatrist, Dr. B, and my therapist of 37 years now, the incredible Helen, are uniting as a team and start steering me back, getting me on the right dose of the right meds. But this will take time. The spiral downwards is gaining a lot of speed and its momentum is pushing me down, deeper, down, down, down. The questions quickly become, are we all clear on your emergency plan if the urges get stronger, Barbara? Should we be throwing more medication at this? Should you even be performing your solo show? It's strongly suggested I stop writing my show for the time being. And the prescription comes back from Dr. B. Think like you're in the hospital. Create an environment of focus on recovery. Pull back completely from things that trigger you. In other words, keep it super, super simple. And I comply as I always do, as I always have with every doctor I've ever worked with, because basically, I don't know. I guess I'm a good girl. And then after a week of behaving like I'm in the hospital, I decide to do it, to go a bit rogue. I go to a movie with a friend, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, and it strikes a chord in me. I get out of that movie and I think, you know, a lot of artistic people are fucked up. Look at Elvis. And I come home and I'm alone in my kitchen. Well, just me and my Alexa. And I'm singing along to Elvis's suspicious minds pretty darn loudly. And I'm dancing, gyrating, vibrating from head to toe to hound dog. And I realize I'm soaring. But I'm not manic or even hypomanic. It's just me, perfect as I am, a very expressive artiste who happens to have bipolar disorder. And I write on a white recipe card, Remember, you're first. Doctors and therapists only know so much. You are the one in charge. You are the one who knows you best. So to get rid of the lingering insomnia and treat the depression, along with the new meds, I decide to start behavioral changes in the form of an intense health regime. I start sleeping in a cold room, 60 to 65 degrees. 
I turn off all the lights in my apartment and sleep in the pitch black darkness for the first time in my life, as I've always been deathly afraid of the dark. I start getting regular exercise. I start doing half an hour of relaxing stretches before bed. I read and listen to the radio instead of having screen time on the TV, computer, or my phone. I look to my nutrition and I cut back on my caffeine. I start to make more social dates with friends and to go to the theater. And I chant, I chant, I chant to value my own life. And I write on a yellow post-it. I am so loved. It may not be the whole pie, but it's a great slice, and I will not give that up. I will live. And I decide to tell my story. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide or in crisis, please text or call 988, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Bluebird of Happiness was directed and the music composed by Seth Barish. It was edited and produced by Justin Barrett with art design by Jennifer Barrett and photo by Rex Slott. Bluebird of Happiness was developed in part at the Barrow Group in New York City, www.barrowgroup.org. My many thanks go out to my logical and biological families for their continued love and support, and to all of you for listening. Thank you.